Well, you might have noticed the talk about a potential ban of handguns in Canada has gone a little bit quieter than it was a few weeks ago. And Matt Gurney, who is a contributor to the National Post, has written about this. He joins us on the line now as well. Matt, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Good morning. So we went from the minister in charge, Bill Blair, uh, talking about this. Uh, it sounded as though uh, the Liberal government on a federal level might have be, even at one point been looking at taking a move of an executive order to do this. Uh, mm-hmm. And they've kind of pulled back. What are you seeing in this in this case? Um, well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, what I'm literally seeing is the same thing that any, any other Canadian is seeing, which is that Bill Blair a few days ago uh, made his announcement that the federal government had looked long and hard at it. They had a consultation that went almost a full year. That's basically what Bill Blair has been working on these last 10 months. And they've decided not to go ahead with a handgun ban. So that's a very literal answer to your question, Jill. But maybe a little bit more interesting is some of the stuff that I've been hearing uh, coming out of Ottawa, just talking with people who are a bit better connected to the situation than I am. And apparently this was something where there was a really big split in the Liberal caucus. Uh, the Liberals, you know, in the big cities thought a handgun ban would be great. It would help shore up their polling numbers after a rough couple of months. But other members of the Liberal caucus, the, the rural caucus, or even just parts of the suburban caucus were just saying, guys, we do well in the big cities anyway. Like the Liberal Party right now does not need help in downtown Toronto or downtown Montreal. It needs help in the rest of the country. And this is a much more divisive issue there. Maybe if they were 10 points higher in the polls, they might feel a little bit more comfortable doing something like this. But I think given how the Conservatives have, at the very least, pulled equal with them in a lot of places, the Liberals just don't feel as comfortable as they might have a year ago uh, putting 30, 40 seats on the line. Uh, Do you think that common sense prevailed in this case as well, in that uh, the realization banning guns from law-abiding Canadians would actually do nothing when it comes to reining in criminals? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly my take, and I've been arguing that for a while. Uh, One of the things that we are able to track, and look, the tracking isn't perfect. I think if maybe one thing we actually can take away from the consultation over the last year is that we need to do a better job of centrally uh, storing some statistics here. But based on everything we know, yeah, there are some guns that are purchased legally by Canadians that either are stolen or they're secretly sold into the black market. But it doesn't seem to be a huge percentage. The majority of handguns, particularly those being used in the big cities, that are traceable are always traced back to the United States. This has been a consistent thing for decades. And even if we did do some things on a public policy front to maybe, you know, chip away at some of the access from guns from Canada, the question that was never answered is why don't we assume that the American supply wouldn't be elastic and that it would just in the great history of prohibited products anywhere just basically the price would go up slightly and the demand would drive more supply. You know, I'm not, I I confess, uh, Jill, I'm not sure what things are like out in in your part of the country, but it's not all that unusual in my hometown of Toronto that we hear on a fairly regular basis of large shipments of handguns being intercepted coming across the border near Detroit or out in eastern Ontario. So if we actually are able to make some progress on that, we could really begin to cut down on gun crime in, in the big cities. 
But you don't really often hear of criminal gangs arming themselves one sports shooter's home at a time. Well, no, and I think that's what, uh, for people who are law-abiding citizens that have uh, gun licenses, and particularly those that have restricted gun licenses, to hear politicians say these are purchases that are made in Canada and these guns are being stolen or being resold is a bit of a head-scratcher because, again, we have those checks and balances in place. If you're a restricted gun license, uh, a gun owner, and suddenly every gun you buy is being lost or stolen, that's going to set up, set off an alarm bell when it comes to law enforcement because that gun is tied to you. It's not as though uh, people are buying these and then passing them on to criminals. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was so frustrating about this whole dialogue we've been having over the last year or so, and a lot of this really did kick off, as you all well know, after the shooting in Toronto along Danforth Avenue, uh, a really busy part of town, great for restaurants, great for nightlife. I think people in my hometown were really shocked by that and really demanded some action here. The problem, though, and you've, you've just you've nailed it. Yeah, the Toronto police were able to point to a couple of incidents. They had a few anecdotes of people who had clean criminal records but were involved in organized crime. They just hadn't been caught yet. They'd gotten a gun license, they went on a shopping spree legally, and then, oops, wouldn't you know it, all those guns got lost onto the black market. This is something that, if this is the problem, if this is what we're actually focused on, there are some really easy solutions to this. You've already alluded to one of them. You have something built into the gun registry that flags automatically an unusual pattern of purchases. That would be easily done. That's a software tweak. For someone who has a large number of restricted guns, make some requirement. You could even do it by taking a photograph that you have to verify on a regular basis that the firearms are still in your possession, that they haven't just been sold into the black market. These are easy tweaks that we could make to our system that would actually, I think, materially improve it, and they would be relatively inexpensive. Instead, the liberals, I think mostly for political reasons, jumped immediately to the Let's spend one and a half billion dollars buying back 900,000 handguns from lawful Canadian owners. Does it actually make sense? No, I don't think it ever really did. But again, it sure would look good on a, a, campaign, a campaign platform as you head into the next election. Uh, would it also, though, it would also anger a lot of people. Uh, granted, there are some uh, that you're right, it would look good. They would think that this is actually something that's being done to combat crime. But then you've got a lot of gun owners who are also furious that the government would take that step. This is going to seem like I'm being maybe a little bit flippant, and I promise I'm not. I take your question very seriously. But my gut feeling is that the liberals would look at the... 2.2 million lawful gun owners in this country and probably not see a lot of potential liberal votes there anyway. Uh, unfortunately, and I, I mean that very sincerely, I do think this is unfortunate. Gun control in this country has become so politicized, it is a heavily partisan issue. So that's not a good thing. Like, I don't think matters of public safety or even intense public policy debates should be split down partisan lines. But ever since the gun registry debacle that began in the mid-1990s, yeah, I, I honestly think the liberals probably have made a decision, and I'm not convinced it's wrong, that gun owners probably don't vote liberal anyway. <laughs> Which, exactly, and, and you raise the excellent point of it shouldn't be partisan. If we're talking about public safety and we're talking about law and gun laws, which we have very stringent ones in this country, it shouldn't come down to politics. It should come down to the issue which people are talking about, which is safety. Well, it should. Unfortunately, it hasn't. And I think probably the 
the cat was let out of the bag a bit. This is something I've been tracking for years just for myself because this is how I party. I'm, I'm, I'm great at parties, believe me. But <laughs> what I've been tracking with just StatsCan data is the long gun registry that was scrapped by the conservatives uh, back in the Stephen Harper, uh, his last mandate. I've been tracking using the available data all of the years before that and all of the years after that to actually track murders or crimes committed with long guns, there is no observable difference. And, you know, hey, maybe 10 years, 20 years from now, maybe there'll be different stats and the trend line will have changed. I can't speak to that, but I can tell you that as of last year's data release, and that's the most recent we have, scrapping the long gun registry, which we were told for years over and over was about public safety had absolutely no impact at all on public safety. So I think now when we try to make the argument, oh, it's going to save lives here, I think a lot of Canadians, and not just the gun owners, have come by their cynicism the honest way. Uh, You mentioned this, or you touched on this uh, in the piece in the National Post as well, about this idea of a central place. And uh, in B.C., uh, there was a mayor in Surrey, uh, another city, uh, the bigger, uh, also a big city in B.C., uh, who floated this idea a while ago. I think it was actually on this radio station saying uh, there's no place for handguns in urban centres and that owners should keep them at a central location, which I'm pretty sure... Everybody, if not 99.9% of handgun owners, kind of shook their head going, what are you talking about? Do you think that's something that the federal liberals would actually look at? You know, I think it's something they probably like the idea of. And that was one of the rumors that was floating around in Ottawa, according to my friends there a couple of months ago, that the liberals weren't going to ban handguns. They were going to say, oh, no, of course, lawfully licensed Canadians can own handguns. But they have to be stored centrally within their community. But I think the problem then came up, and I I called up a buddy of mine who owns a gun store. It's in a town called Waterloo, about an hour outside Toronto, and I I gave him a call, and I'm like, okay, so you actually have a gun store. It's a a big piece of property. It's in in an industrial area. It's It's a big store. I'm like, how many guns could you safely hold? And he thought about it, and he kind of goes, well, you know, with inventory moving through, maybe we have one, 200 guns on the property at any given time, and they have to be very carefully stored. And I'm like, okay, but how many could you hold? He said, I don't know, maybe triple, right? So you think, okay, so you've got this big specialized facility that can maybe hold 600 guns. Then you've got to think to yourself, there's maybe 10 stores like that within one hour of Toronto where I live. So you think, okay, so there's room for 6,000 guns. And then you look at the available gun registry data and you see that there is three to four hundred thousand restricted weapons in or around Toronto. And you start thinking, where are they going to put these things? It's just a matter of logistics. And then not only would you have to find a place to store them, not only would you have to make sure it's incredibly secure, somebody would have to pay for it. And there would have to be some way that lawful gun owners could get in, sign out their guns, go to a target range, or whatever, right? There would have to be this whole system built up around it. So I'm not saying it's impossible. Anything's possible, but it would be very expensive, very burdensome. It wouldn't actually make the problem any better. And I think fundamentally, if you're the Liberal government, you go out and you spend a quadrillion dollars building a thousand gun storage facilities all over the country, and then you make the police pay for them, and then the police are cranky because they're putting officers into that, you start thinking about this, and it doesn't have any observable impact on crime in the big cities. Two years later, you're going to look like idiots. (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. Um, one other thing, do you, and I don't know if you're hearing this uh, in your circles as well. What do you think we're going to see as far as uh, could there be uh, perhaps more bans of types of rifles or bans of guns that maybe make people feel uncomfortable, but again, aren't actively being used in crimes, but maybe look uh, like they could be? Do you think we're going to see more bans on particular types of rifles or other guns? Yeah, I do. And I'm going to tell you why. Just as you and I were getting started a few minutes ago, you had said that the talk about a, a handgun ban, you, you, said, you said it exactly right. You said the talk about the handgun ban had really been fading. At the exact same time, the talk about banning certain rifles has been getting louder. So you could see the way, and this is, I say this with admiration. I mean, I admire the political process. I, I like, I love politics. I love watching it. Even as the liberals began shutting up about a handgun ban, they started talking about rifle bans. So they're looking specifically at uh, the AR-15 rifle and rifles that are similar to that, they've said. No one knows exactly what that's going to mean, and it would be a logistical nightmare to start sorting rifles into good versus bad categories. Guns are, like, I think, I think probably some of your listeners understand this, and you obviously do. Guns, about anything else, whatever the gun control debate is, it's a technical debate. You've got to define these things. You need to come up with workable definitions based on calibers or firing capacity or the size of the weapon. A lot of the decisions, though, ultimately end up being very arbitrary. And Godspeed to any government that thinks they're going to find some way to thread that needle that's not going to alienate basically 100% of the country, because some of it is going to think they were way too too stringent. Uh, The other part is going to think they didn't go nearly far enough. Maybe they pick off the AR-15 because based on what's happened in the United States and also recently in New Zealand, they're probably going to calculate that there's not going to be a huge outcry, save the AR-15. I think it would be louder than they expect, but I honestly think the liberals have concluded they need to do something before the next election, and this is probably their best bet. All right. We will leave it there, but Matt, I'm sure we'll talk to you about this again. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, just a few days ago when our government, the federal government, approved once again the Trans Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, I don't think that came as a huge surprise to anyone, even that day leading up to it. Most of the headlines were, it's expected the government which owns this project will approve it. But there were a lot of people putting the call out there saying, wait a minute, how can you declare a national climate emergency one day and approve a pipeline expansion the next? Well, my next guest has written about this. Warren Maybe is a professor and Head of Geography and Planning at Queen's University and joins me on the line now. Professor, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, What do you say to people who uh, question how a government can do that, say it's a a climate emergency, and then go ahead and approve this project? (laughs) Well, it's it's a great point. You know, this is a government that is really trying to satisfy two very different groups out there. They're trying to satisfy uh, the environmental movement, and lots of Canadians feel that they're part of that movement. They want to see uh, us dealing with climate change. They want to see us dealing with emissions. Uh, so this government's been very aggressive. At the same time, they don't want to be seen as anti-industry, anti-business. So uh, they've been working to try to support expansion of, of various industries, including the oil sands. So uh, it's really, you know, two different stories, and it's kind of hard to reconcile and put it together. 
so when we take the phrase, though, a, a national climate emergency, it sounds very focused. It sounds uh, very action involved. But what exactly does that mean? Well, it's, it's not exactly a state of emergency. And I think that's where people get confused. Uh, you know, a state of emergency does give a government powers. It, it allows governments to override normal operations. Uh, maybe it involves calling out the army or, you know, maybe it involves, uh, uh, you know, cutting down on, on people's mobility and things like that. Uh, and we've seen that happen before, and we've seen it happen with flooding and, and with natural disasters across the country. A climate emergency is really more of a call to action and it doesn't involve any of those steps. So the government isn't really preparing to roll the army out now. You know, it's it's not an immediate problem that they're going to deal with. It's rather, this is a big problem that we have to look at, and it should influence the way that we do business going forward. And is that the main thing, then, influencing the way we do business? So, or what else would be the reason of making that declaration? Well, I think part of it is to uh, show solidarity with other groups that are are doing that. And there are other nations around the world that are uh, starting to declare climate emergencies. We're the biggest so far, but uh, you've seen countries like Scotland step in. And you've seen a lot of municipalities. And, of course, Vancouver has done it. Um, My hometown here in Kingston has done it. So lots of places have started to go this route. But what we haven't seen is what it will actually lead to. You know, I think that the most that we can predict is that governments will be more mindful of the environment in their future decisions. Um, but yeah, there's not a lot of templates going forward. It, right, because, and you mentioned that, so we talk about places like Vancouver, uh, San Francisco, uh, places that have made this declaration of a climate emergency, but uh, you make a, a good point. Uh, saying it is one thing. Uh, the, really, the question is, what actions are you taking? And even if you as a, as a small city or a small place globally are taking action, it doesn't really mean much if others aren't doing the same thing. That's right. Uh, you know, there's only so much that Canada can do Um, We are a small part of global emissions. At the same time, we're a wealthy nation with a lot of great ideas. And so if we can't figure out ways to bring our emissions down, and if we can't find ways to lighten our footprint, then really, you know, who can? (laughs) If if we're not able to do it, uh, it's much harder for some other nations to deal with the same problem. Uh, Is it a question of, though, being able to do it or having the wherewithal or having the, the gumption to actually go ahead and do it? I think that, yeah, you do need a piece of that. You need uh, the political will and you need to bring people on side with the idea. And, you know, I think that our fall election is really starting to shape up to be partly about that. You know, uh, we're going to hear a lot about carbon pricing. We're going to hear a lot about uh, Bill C-69. We're going to hear a lot about um, the government's move uh, or lack of moves with the pipelines. All of these things are going to, to play a big role uh, in the election that's coming up, and it's really kind of a referendum on how Canada is dealing with climate uh, in, in our future plans. Uh, do you think that we get a bit sidetracked or put too much focus on the Trans Mountain expansion? I mean, there are other pipelines. There's Line 3. There are other pipelines that have been uh, built uh, that, have been, uh, that have kind of gone ahead without nearly the uh, same amount of attention as Trans Mountain. Uh, is it because this one's on the coast? Is it because it also involves uh, tankers off the coast that it's getting the bulk of the attention? I think that's part of the reason. I think that, uh, you know, the opposition to Trans Mountain has been well organized. 
I think that there are some real legitimate environmental concerns associated with the pipeline, particularly the marine leg, you know, the tanker traffic coming in and out of the port, but just the pipeline operation itself. People are aware that pipelines don't always work with 100% safety. You know, there have been enough problems over the last decade that we can look at and see examples of pipeline failures and leaks and spills, uh, and people are, are rightly concerned about it. So I think that Trans Mountain has gotten the press because it does really increase the amount of oil that comes to the coast and because people on the coast are really well organized to, to try to fight back against it. Uh, even though uh, when you talk about some of the issues with it, uh, we're also told and studies show that it is still the safest way. And it's not as though we're going to stop using oil tomorrow. I mean, I, I know there is a plan that in the future, we're certainly going to cut back on that and 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 reduce. Uh, but it's not as though we're going to stop tomorrow. So in the meantime, is it not the safest way to be uh, transporting it? It is the safest way to move it around for sure. And I think that um, a lot of different arguments tend to get lumped together here. So there are people that want us to cut down on oil use and point to pipelines as just enabling more oil use in the future so we shouldn't have it. There are people that are concerned about the day-to-day operation. And as you say, uh, the risks are relatively small and and smaller than other um, options, transport options that are before us. Uh, And it will take time to make this move from oil to other things. And we're starting to see it happen. You know, uh, 10 years ago, we didn't have nearly as many electric car options. Um, 10 years ago, a lot of other technologies were much more uh, early days, you know, including renewable energies and renewable electricity options. All of those things are moving forward very fast. Um, We're going to see a transition happen, but we will need the oil in the meantime. Uh, so what do you, where does the government stand then or being in the, in this difficult place where uh, I mean in some cases in, in the harshest terms being being called hypocrites for declaring a climate emergency and then approving this pipeline how how does the government reconcile that Well they've tried to reconcile it by saying that all of the corporate tax revenue that will come off this pipeline will go into renewable energy projects and that's great because it's about half a billion dollars is what they expect per year Uh, that would be available for green energy or climate adaptation projects. It's not much when you compare it to what is estimated to go into the fossil industry. So the fossil fuel sector in Canada receives about $3.5 billion a year in subsidy, um, and that's a conservative estimate. You know, that is money that is helping to support jobs, which is great, but it's helping to support an industry that that does have a big footprint and needs to reduce its footprint. So the government's trying to reconcile it by saying they're going to throw some money in. I personally would like to see them put more in and and try to move us faster towards that green energy alternative future. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Interesting uh, interesting look at this uh, for sure. Professor Maybe, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. Well, you may have heard about uh, this story, and uh, as a taxpayer, probably scratching your head a bit, Elections Canada paid about $325,000 directly to some social media influencers. And this was a campaign that was supposed to boost voter registration, to get people excited about voting and to get people informed about voting. However, turns out some of the influencers appeared to be, well, involved in activities that could easily 
easily be deemed partisan. So the whole program was scrapped. They were going to spend $650,000. It was scrapped, but taxpayers will not be getting their money back. Well, let's bring in Aaron Woodrick, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Aaron, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Uh, what's your response to hearing about this? It was a $650,000 campaign. Half of the money spent, it's now been scrapped and no refund. Yeah, this one is, this was a head scratcher and it's very disappointing and I think very frustrating for those of us who are, you know, watch tax dollars very carefully. I mean, first and foremost, there's the idea that they paid these people in advance before vetting them. I mean, it's very strange. I don't think many people in many jobs would pay people up front before checking their qualifications to do something. And that appears to be what Elections Canada has done here. The other issue is whether or not Elections Canada should even be doing this sort of thing at all. Uh, It sounds like someone inside Elections Canada thought it would be clever and sort of keeping up with times to hire social media influencers. But really, Elections Canada's job, Jill, is to run the election. It is not to worry about voter turnout. It is not to try and find cool and creative ways to get people to vote it is to just execute the actual logistics of an election and you know unfortunately this this little episode has really uh, given them a black eye in terms of their reputation and, and i'm frankly most concerned about what it says about their confidence uh, you know we need to have faith in the election process we need to have confidence that it's being run by people who have good judgment and know what they're doing and this little episode, unfortunately, is, is really not going to help the reputation. And when I first started looking at this, too, uh, much of what you just said kind of stuck out to me in that I get if we have low voter turnout and if somebody can point to that and say, well, it's because people aren't informed and people aren't educated about the voting process. OK, that seems like advertising. It might be good. Getting the word out there, making sure people know about it uh, seems like a benign enough operation. But anytime you're talking about Elections Canada and then bringing in the term influencers, even that just on that level seems incorrect. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Look, I think a good example of something Elections Canada could do as part of its mandate would be translating stuff about how to vote and how to exercise your vote into into languages, other languages, right? I mean, we have a lot of uh, new immigrants who may maybe have never voted before, don't understand the process. I think that would be a legitimate thing for Elections Canada to do. Uh, but when you again, when you, you do something like social media influencing, not only does the term influencing uh, not reflect well, even if it was unintentional, um, you know, it's no secret that the types of people that would see these types of messages are a particular demographic. Um, and that demographic, you know, may be more inclined to vote for some parties than others. And that opens up Elections Canada to allegations of bias, which is what we do not want. I don't think, Jill, for a second that uh, Elections Canada is deliberately doing this or is deliberately partisan, but they have to be very, very careful about the impression they leave, uh, lest they start to be viewed as as not impartial. And the fact that uh, they were hired, and you mentioned this, the fact that these influencers were hired without any vetting is also uh, just mind-boggling because it's not as though any of that information was hidden. These are people who have a social media presence. That was the whole reason why they were hired. And it would have taken very little research to go back and figure out wait a minute, uh, this person was blogging or talking favorably about Justin Trudeau. This person was talking negatively about the Conservatives. It's not as though that information was difficult to find. No, this was an extremely easy. I mean, in fact, people on social media with five second Google searches were turning up things that demonstrated some of these influencers, uh, you know, celebrities in their own right. They had said statements about politicians very recently in the last couple of years. So, again, it it kind of boggles the mind that that would not be the first 
step that Alexis Canada would take before even talking to these people, before even talking about giving them money. You would think they would have done that. Again, the fact they didn't uh, does not reflect very well on them. Uh, how do you recover from something like this then when we're we're already looking at other elections around the world uh, we're uh, the states uh, just south of us so we've been uh, focused very much on meddling in the election which i think lends people to be looking at this more and wanting to make sure that there isn't meddling with our elections that they are fair how do you recover from something like this yeah, I think the best thing elections can't, I mean, I'm glad they scrapped it. Let's uh, let's not forget, at first they were going to press on with it. They have now backed away, so that's good. I think the best thing they can do is just focus on the nuts and bolts of the election. Uh, we're very lucky to have elections in this country that are free and fair, and, you know, uh, ballots are counted in, in efficiently on the night of. We don't have to wait days for the results. So I think Elections Canada should leverage its strengths stick to executing the election uh, and let, let the political parties who have a particular interest in the matter uh, worry about trying to get people out to vote. Uh, do you think there needs to be uh, uh, more strict rules when it comes to spending by Elections Canada? Yeah, and I think uh, if anything good comes out of this episode, it will teach them to be more careful. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we should skimp on running an election. We are we are certainly a tight-fisted group when it comes to spending taxpayer money, but we think elections are things that you need to spend what you need to spend to run them properly because the process is very important. Uh, but I'm hoping, as I said, if, if any good comes of this, it's a lesson learned for Elections Canada, and going forward, they will do due diligence before they undertake any other sort of future campaign. And I suppose the reason, because a lot of people have been pointing at the fact that they didn't ask for the money back, but the reason for that being... Uh, they were the ones that made the mistake. These people were hired. They were presumably hired. Uh, they may have even thought Elections Canada did its homework and knew exactly what their background was like. But there are concerns uh, that uh, that money spent and uh, not being refunded. Yeah, look, I, I don't think it hurts to ask. Uh, I, I suppose contractually, if those people are not obligated to give it back, that's uh, that's that's bad luck for all of us and is a stupid mistake on Alexis Canada's part. But uh, I think perhaps it's worth asking because if some of those uh, those influencers are of good faith, they'll recognize that it's, it probably doesn't reflect well on them either to be keeping the money when they didn't actually do anything for it. Uh, exactly. So do you think we've learned from this or are we, are we I guess, looking for this moving forward to make sure it doesn't happen again? I hope we have. Look, there have been a number of examples here politically. Canada's been lucky in terms of us uh, you not, not having the more serious problems about election interference, but uh, it seems like our governments and some government agencies continue to make mistakes, whether deliberate or just uh, you know, Ill, Ill, ill-informed, that they leave the impression. And we also have the, uh, you know, the Trudeau government deciding to subsidize uh, certain media. Uh, you know, that itself is going to lead to uh, you know, the impression of bias, even if there is no bias. So I think we have to be very careful. I recognize that some political parties want to make hay out of this for their own interest, but the, the system itself, the integrity of the system is very, very important. And we I'll have to protect that at all costs, because if we lose faith in the democratic process, you know, it's very hard to convince people that any election, no matter what the outcome is, is a fair and just one. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks a lot, Joe. Well, a bit later on today, uh, something is going to be taking place uh, in Vancouver, the 2019 Canadian Grand Prix Hearts Tournament. And this is in association with that tournament. There are Canadian championships uh, taking place. And Sean Bordoff, who is the event organizer, joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Sean, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. It's uh, great to speak with you. And uh, it's kind of an amazing thing that... uh, 
this tournament has so few participants signed up right now on meetup.com. Uh, someone could incredibly be Canadian champion and just play perhaps amongst seven other participants. So what exactly is the tournament? Well, uh, I've been playing hearts for a long time and I've been attending games uh, nights at uh, Toby's on commercial, which was a meetup event. And I met a few other people uh, in the fall who were playing hearts and said, well, why don't you do a, a biweekly meetup? And I did that. I organized a, a meetup, and we play in the back room, uh, private room at uh, Dunn's on Seymour. It's a, it's a Montreal deli. It's amazing food. So we have a Friday night dinner and hearts every couple of weeks. And people have uh, asked, well, we should do a tournament. And I, I thought, okay, well, that would be a good idea down the road. And I decided to put together a tournament. And then I found uh, Joe Andrews. Uh, he is the guy who wrote the book on hearts, and he runs – uh, tournament in the U.S., and this is the 20th anniversary of the World Series of Hearts in St. Louis. So Joe is supportive of uh, our specific little tournament and uh, said, hey, why don't you guys um, come down to St. Louis? I said, well, you know, maybe if the first and second prize winners are um, on board, we can have them come down and represent Canada. He's like, sure, I don't know of any other Canadian tournaments. So <laughs> this tournament that just impromptu came up uh, now is the Canadian Grand Prix Championship and uh, you could come by today I think it might rain this afternoon so it's a good day to stay inside and, and play some hearts and eat some great uh, deli food uh, on Seymour near Robson will be there at noon. And what is the, the draw of hearts for people that aren't familiar with the game or maybe have never played it before what is it that's uh, so enticing? What I really like about hearts is it combines a bit of strategy and uh, a bit of luck. In the tournament, there's a little bit less luck because um, hearts basically is a passing game. And uh, in regular play, you, you pass three cards left, and then the next go you play, pass right, and then across, and then there's a hold hand or a no pass. Well, the tournament, um, it's all passing. We don't have the hold hand. So there's a little bit less luck, and basically – uh, each heart is worth one point, and the Queen of Spades is worth 13 points, which is a combination of all the hearts uh, put together. So that's that's the most dangerous card. And a lot of people are familiar with hearts as a game that you'd play on your computer or on your phone. You could get free apps for your smartphone, and a lot of people do that. Uh, but I was really turned on to it uh, prior to smartphones when I was doing background work for movies and TV shows on set. Uh, back in the 90s. Um, so we would play hearts when we're, we're waiting to go on and, and uh, be uh, kind of moving furniture for movies and TV shows as a background performing artist. And uh, it's, it's a fun game, and it's, it's really uh, engaging. And when you play in person, there's a real good social um, interaction with it that you don't get online. Like online, um, I could play a game in, in 10 minutes where uh, there's no way that we'd be able to do that in person in person, like the quickest game I think I've ever played uh, would be 20 minutes or half an hour. And that would be against people who just had extremely bad luck or really knew and uh, was able to, uh, to get a lot of, get them a lot of points quite quickly. And you mentioned it's social. Do you think in a tournament like this, will it be social as far as people uh, meeting one another and becoming friends or is it pretty competitive? 
I imagine it'll still be very social because none of us are, you know, professional hearts players. We're, we're just regular people who, who like to play it for fun. And uh, the people signed up, uh, most of them right now, are people I'm familiar with uh, who've been coming regularly to our hearts meet up and, and are quite social. And, and, and the fact that, you know, people play it so often online or on their phones is, is kind of a, a different aspect to it. I was at a show the other night and one of the, I told them about the, the tournament and one of the performers says, oh, wait a minute. So that game you play online, you can actually play in person. I said, yeah, it was made to be played in person first. So the so hearts is, uh, is a fun card game. And I think we kind of miss that, uh, that interaction and gameplay. People still play a lot of different board games and there's, there's quite a few of them that um, have a following, but I think we've kind of lost a little bit of that non uh, financial gain card play uh, with the, uh, Poker, um, it's it's all become about this one specific poker game, uh, Texas Hold'em, and and it's gone beyond just the aspect of of the social interaction of of playing cards. But uh, it's more about how you can uh, make a lot of money or how you can try and make a lot of money at uh, at playing poker. Right. Isn't that something that people say, wait a minute, that game, that online game, you can play it in person with real cards. So we've gone so far from that. Um, just yeah. before I let you go, so just to, to reiterate, if people come down and take part in this today, there is a chance then you could go to the big tournament? Well, uh, it's a $10 buy-in and uh, the winner will get um, pretty much 70% of uh, the buy-in funds and a, a trophy that declares you a Canadian champion uh, for 2019. And Joe Andrews is open to uh, registering. So I mean, up to the participant if they want to do it, but um, they're perfectly able to pay the $50 U.S. entry fee and make it down to St. Louis. And and uh, we're not paying for accommodations or flights or anything like that. But, uh, you know, if you, if you win, I'd, I'd hope that you would uh, enter uh, the World Series and represent Canada and maybe even become world champion. All right. Uh, what should people know if somebody is listening to this and thinking, yeah, I want to check that out? What can they do? Well, you could go to meetup.com. I'm not going to say the complete uh, address, uh, uh, URL address, because um, it's it's not going to translate over the radio. But meetup.com is very easy to navigate and you can find uh, what's going on today. We're part of the Extremely Shy Vancouver group, uh, which has over 30,000 um, members. It's probably the largest uh, meetup group, um, maybe in in all of the world, but definitely in Vancouver. And uh, you can find our uh, meetup there. And if if you don't even find it there, just come down right before noon. Uh, it's I believe this the address is eight ninety seven, but it's it's on Seymour, uh, just between Robson and Smythe, closer to Robson. It's a, it's a great deli, and just come into Dunn's and um, head to the back room and. And I'll be there and we'll, we'll have tables and, and uh, you can order some bunch and have some fun and maybe become a Canadian champion. <laughs> All right. Sounds uh, like a great Sunday afternoon. Sean, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. And good luck today. Thank you, Jill. Take care. Hope to see you soon. Well, if when you're out and about, you think or it looks like you've been seeing more and more people vaping, uh, probably true, probably the case. A new survey shows that there's been a huge increase, particularly in the teenaged age group when it comes to vaping right across the country. Uh, 
upwards of about 74% increase right across Canada in teen vaping use. So much so that BC's Health Minister Adrian Dix has said uh, he would like to see some tougher provincial restrictions on vaping and uh, that's in light of this new study. And they're also recommending that federal regulatory action be taken when it comes to vaping products and uh, looking at more restrictions on this as well. So let's bring in uh, David Swainer, adjunct professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa, also advisory board chair for the Centre for Health Law Policy and Ethics. David, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Jill. Uh, What are your thoughts on this? Are any surprises that we've seen this increase in vaping, particularly for teenagers? No, it's not really surprising. I mean, given that this is a a relatively new phenomenon, you would expect large percentage increases, even though the, uh, the total numbers are quite small. What concerns me is that there seems to be sort of an orchestrated moral panic of, oh my God, we've got young people using these products, we, we better ban them. Uh, and, and I think for you know, intelligent health policy, we really need to, to look carefully at this to say, what are our goals? Um, what are any unintended consequences that, that we're looking at now, such as young people using these products? Uh, and what should we do about it? And I think that's really important because we need to remember that Cigarette smoking is still killing over 40,000 Canadians a year. Uh, It's killing about 20,000 people a day globally. And what's killing them is they're sucking smoke into their lungs. It's the smoke, not the nicotine, that's causing all the cancers, the heart disease, the lung disease, etc., and poisoning the people around them. So if we could deliver nicotine without the smoke, we have one of the biggest public health breakthroughs ever. Vaping has the potential to do that, and we're seeing this with a range of non-combustible products in various countries. The question is, how do you get that mix right in order to have that breakthrough in reducing cigarette use while dealing with any unintended consequences like is there a problem among young people? And if so, how best should we deal with that? Right, because on the one hand, vaping is considered uh, or a way for people to who are trying to quit smoking as an alternative or a way to, to perhaps transition to becoming a non-smoker. Uh, and then that unintended consequence could be that teenagers are going to start vaping, but these could be teens that would never have started smoking or have never smoked. Yeah, if we look at the data, there. I'm less concerned than, than the people who are uh, jumping up and down, because if you, if you consider the numbers, the number of never smoking young people in Canada, based on these surveys, who have tried vaping, and this doesn't mean that they're vaping lots every day, they've just tried vaping 15 times over the last 30 days, it's a fraction of 1%. Uh, and sure, we don't want you know, young people to be using nicotine or alcohol or uh, probably caffeine, uh, but, but this is a very small number. The, the vast majority of the young people who are regular vapors are people who are already smoking. And to the extent it's getting them off smoking, that's a good thing. Uh, so you do want to reduce that number, but not at the cost of restrictions that make it far less likely that the millions of smokers in Canada are less likely to start vaping or using other non-combustible products and saving their lives. Do we know enough about vaping then as far as health concerns and what potential health risks there are? Sure, it's basic science. So if we go to very credible medical authorities, and there's probably no medical authority more credible than this prestigious Royal College of Physicians in the UK, they say that it is likely that these products are at least 95% safer than smoking cigarettes. 
I mean, that's a huge difference. You know, when you look at everything we've done in automobile safety in Canada, you know, since the 1970s, has reduced auto fatality rates by a little over 80%. I mean, that's phenomenal. But if you've got something saying that at least 95%, you know, that's extraordinary. And so we have this potential to, to do that. It's, it's, just, it's not just that we know that cigarettes will kill over half of the long-term users. We know why. And it's because of the inhalation of smoke. So we do have a, a tremendous opportunity here. If we can get the right message out to smokers to say, here's something that has a massively lower risk based on all the science that we can see. It's something that can replace your cigarettes more effectively than other products that have existed to date. The products are getting better all the time, and a lot of them are much less expensive than smoking cigarettes. And they don't make you stink. Uh, I mean, there, there's all sorts of reasons we would be able to move people to these products and achieve a really big uh, uh, public health breakthrough. It's a matter of how do we, how do we get there and how do we deal with any of the, the roadblocks along the way? Because there are a lot of people who really think nicotine use should be treated like sin rather than as a public health issue, which is not different than a whole lot of other health issues we deal with. You know, we, we see it whether, whether we're dealing with issues of alcohol or sexual activity or drug use. Uh, and I think it's a matter of can we rationally look at this and say our goal isn't to make better people is to make people better. <laughs> very, very uh, interesting way of putting it. I guess is the concern that if you if you hype it up too much or, or talk about the benefits and how much better it is uh, comparing it to smoking, the concern then that somebody, again, a young person might pick up the habit uh, because uh, all they're hearing is positive things about it. Well, I, I think it's a matter of what are those messages that they're hearing. I, I think right now where we actually have huge constraints on the ability of anybody who's selling vaping-type products or other low-risk alternatives to cigarettes, huge barriers for them telling people truthful information on relative risk. You know, as, as a lawyer, as a longstanding public health activist, I think that's absurd. I mean, we should be encouraging truthful information to consumers. What we should be doing is watching for anybody who takes things too far, who targets non-smokers, who targets young people. And that's the sort of thing that we do with normal consumer protection legislation. You know, we tell people about how you can buy yourself a safer automobile. Uh, but if you're selling safer automobiles, we don't want you to be convincing 16-year-olds they should get in and see how fast they can make them go. Right. Uh, are we missing the mark then when we focus on or call for uh, different packaging or uh, similar packaging to cigarette products in that plain packaging and not to make it appealing to people? I, I think very much. I mean, what, what we want to do is uh, get substitution to work for us, as it has in so many other things. You know, we can substitute clean needles for dirty needles. We substitute safer cars for, uh, for unsafe automobiles. We substitute sanitary medical equipment for unsanitary uh, equipment. You know, science-based pharmaceuticals in place of snake oil. It's far easier to substitute a good or service than to get somebody to simply stop using something. And that's why we did things like use tax policy to encourage people to move from, say, leaded to unleaded gasoline. So you don't want to take the, the low-risk product and treat it the same as the high-risk product when consumers are currently using the really high-risk product because that just convinces them there's no difference in risk. They continue to use cigarettes 
and they continue to die in massive numbers. Right. What about the idea of uh, some people would raise the concern that uh, it's unclear what is actually in a vaping uh, product or the, the, the amount of nicotine, the concentration of nicotine, that there needs to be better information. So people, if you do choose to go and, and to vape, that you know exactly what you're getting. Sure. I, I think consumer information is a really important thing. Uh, we want people to have a range of choices. We want them to have accurate information about what those products are. We want to, to have reasonable standards. What we want to avoid are people imposing standards that, that put these products at a disadvantage compared to cigarettes. You know, I think ideally you want them to be at least as available as cigarettes, probably more available. Uh, you, you want them to be lower cost than cigarettes. You want people to have accurate information about them. And I think the more adults that we get using these products, the better in all sorts of ways. You know, we, we know the single biggest reason that young people take up smoking is by having significant others around them, you know, parents, teachers, coaches, et cetera, who are smoking cigarettes. And cigarettes are available because they're leaving packs around, that sort of thing. And most of those people don't want to smoke. So if, if we could deal with that, there'd be far fewer opportunities for young people to start smoking. Also, probably the best way to discourage a young person from wanting to vape is for them to see that this is something that, you know, these old folks like us are doing. Um, you know, it's, it's the, you know, their, their uh, aunts and uncles and uh, I, because they're not wanting to replicate that sort of thing. So let's aim truthful information at the millions of Canadians who are smoking. Let's monitor what's happening with young people. But let's, let's do the sorts of things that have long worked so well in public health give people enough information to make an informed decision, give them the ability to act on that information in terms of product availability, and nudge them a bit, you know, in terms of uh, differential taxes, uh, different packaging, uh, you know, how rapidly could we move people off cigarettes? And then to the extent that people are wanting to get off nicotine as well, what products can we make available to help them do that? But, you know, in reality, in terms of the, the, the overall health problem, the nicotine isn't the problem, it's the smoke. If we get people off the smoke, we've accomplished something really tremendous. Uh, so would you say uh, one of the, the federal, uh, the recommendations that came out uh, from the federal consultations on this, one of them, one of them is uh, to require a signature upon delivery, and if you order uh, vaping products through the mail, uh, they cannot be left on doorsteps. Do you think that goes too far? No, well, I, I think we, we have to monitor it to make sure that this is, um, this is reaching smokers effectively uh, without uh, making it available to young people. I mean, Jill, one of the concerns I have here is that if we look at who still smokes in the largest numbers in Canada, they're multiply disadvantaged people. You know, we have a tremendous number of people who have uh, mental health challenges and, and other issues with very high rates of smoking where we have not made the inroads that we've made elsewhere. We have to keep that in mind, that those are the lives that are on the line. It's, it's similar, actually, to what we're dealing with, things like uh, opioids. How do we effectively reach these people? Don't think of the sorts of messages that you would be sending to somebody who's you know, well-adjusted, higher income, post-university education. Uh, look at the people you're actually trying to reach. Meet them where they are. What are the messages they need? What is the availability of the product? And keep monitoring to make sure that we are reaching those people. They are getting truthful information, that the, the messages they're being given are things they can relate to, that the products are available are, are things that they can use, and that they're, they're more affordable to them than buying their cigarettes. All right. Well, it's an interesting uh, topic, an interesting uh, way of looking at it, for sure. Uh, Professor Sweener, I thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this. Uh, and uh, thanks again. Have a great rest of your day. Same to you, Jill.